Word. All right. So, saludos, compas del mundo, and thanks for joining us again on this edition of Machete Mate, the Revolutionary Marcus podcast for the Latino community in La Patria Grande and in the diaspora. So, we're out here talking about things that matter to us as a community, not only in Latin America, but across the world. Um, but before we get into it, um, again, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to them, the Wurundjeri people of so-called Melbourne, Australia. Um, and Austin, if you want to do the same. Yeah, buddy, of course. Yeah, this is Austin G back again, coming from the, uh, land that was originally inhabited by the Rappanic peoples here in the central part of so-called Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, again, always important. We're going to be talking about decolonization to always acknowledge our complicity in it. And again, we could talk day and night about settler colonialism and all the horrors of that, but we have to admit that we are also partaking in that to some degree, you know? Um, and change begins with us, correct? Exactly, um, of course. It's important. So today we want to talk about something that um, personally I find really fascinating. It's more um, in line with my sort of academic background. I have a degree in linguistics, and for me, I've, there's very few things more fascinating than language and the interconnection of language and culture and, and that whole um, framework. Um, and when we talk about decolonization and like post-colonial topics, it's always, I feel, very abstract in that this this society came, colonized these people, ethnic cleansing, genocide, you know, wealth extraction, this and that, whatever, and thus touch on like the destruction of cultures and language and that. But um, it's very rarely is it ever spoken about how it affects at an individual level and how language and the change in language and the evolution of language within a colonial context affects an individual's identity um, as it plays into the bigger sort of concept of an entire colonized society. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit, but um, before we start, like, what's going on, man? Like, crazy week. Oh, man, <laughs> you really could say that again. Like, I know... I know I've been insanely busy you know, I do, I do work with one of the local unions here in Virginia and it's just outrageous how, how really bad the local governments, the, the state government here, the federal government has been handling the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. You know, I get calls whenever, if I'm talking to like other union members, people telling me they don't have, you know, PPE, they're, they're like protective equipment. They don't have masks. They don't have gloves, people running out of hand sanitizer. Like, it's just ridiculous. Like, the amount and, – and these are people that still have to work, right? Yeah, <laughs> these absolutely. are, like, the, the lower-income folks that are doing those, quote-unquote, essential jobs, which, you know, nobody really gave a fuck about before. But exactly. Isn't that amazing yeah. how um, yeah. <laughs> unskilled labor is now essential? It's crazy, man. Like, and, and that's why it's so – it's so jarring to see it up front. Like, and, and, yeah. and it's not just happening in Virginia. Like, uh, I have a couple different, you know, union buddies from all random parts throughout the country. And it's the same shit, man. Like <laughs> union calls these days. I mean, granted the union movement is always a struggle everywhere. And in the United States where it's been, you know, beaten back time and time again, but Oh man, it's rough now. It's just 
horror stories, people wondering if they're going to be able to, to, to pay, you know, to put food on the table. You know, Virginia, yeah. the state where I'm at is one of the worst for workers. So people yeah. are just trying to get people are just trying to get pandemic leave. Like exactly. we were. Yeah, we were just lucky now to be able to push the county to, to approve uh, just two more weeks of paid pandemic leave. And that's like a big fucking win. Yeah. But like, oh, 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 man, it's just rough. And of course, <laughs> I don't know how much you want to get into this, but Bernie Sanders officially dropped out this week, which was incredible. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, man. Like, I'll be completely honest. Being here in Virginia and seeing the way, it, like how bad the election went on yeah. Super Tuesday. Yeah. Being a Super Tuesday state, dude, that was like when I I thought it was already over. Yeah. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to give up hope like that and like bring everybody down and you know be t- be too much of that guy. But yeah. y- you knew, you know, you knew that the establishment had already come together had done what they could to just to just knife Bernie Sanders and just to tell the whole left wing of the party, you know, fuck you guys. <laughs> we don't need you at all. We, and we just, can and just, and yeah, just sorry, I was going to say, like, since you're there on the ground, obviously I'm on the other side of the planet. and I'm not necessarily on the ground. Do you believe besides like aside from any sort of conspiratorial like notions, you think this was the plan from the beginning? That they flooded the the field with all these mediocre, um, milk toast candidates for this to specifically happen, or do you think it sort of evolved and like the Democratic Party sort of rolled with the punches? I think I think it was definitely by design. I think it was definitely by design. Do I think necessarily that like all the fucking candidates sat in a room and they were like, okay, cool, so this is going to be the plan to stop Bernie? No, yeah. it's just the system working. You know, they know their role. That's exactly <laughs> they know what. They, like guys like Pete Buttigieg know how you angle for a presidential a spot in a presidential administration, right? Yes. And it's certainly not by endorsing Bernie Sanders. <laughs> That's how you get blacklisted. Exactly right. You know? And so, and so it's, it's it's the way the system works. And so like this is obviously part of a, a broader discussion that we could go on and on for hours with. But absolutely, it, you know, it, it really gives me pause about working with the Democratic Party to make change. How, how can change actually be done in the Imperial Corps, which is obviously so important. Um, and when, when literally the machines are built in a way to stop any exactly. sort of actual yeah. change. And like, I think that's my gripe with a lot of people who are sort of on our side of politics who still have this massive faith in a Bernie-esque sort of revolution. Because in my mind, there you can't build a truly liberatory movement within a sort of colonial system. And at the end of the day, like as much as like Bernie Sanders would have been the best case scenario and would have made great strides in alleviating like the sheer misery of U.S. capitalism. At the end of the day, he was running to be the face of a capitalist liberal democracy with uh, within the context of globally moderate social democratic reforms. You know what I mean? So for me, like for me, it's it sucks that this happened but it's not surprising and i don't think i necessarily put um i don't know if it's just me being cynical or what it is but never put my faith 100 percent in that route because at the end of the day were we going to get our liberation from a standards administration we would move the needle in that direction but at the end of the day it would have been 
more or less business as usual. But that could just be me being defeated, oh, yeah. me being cynical or whatever. And um, again, like I'm in a pretty privileged situation being over here in Australia with my Medicare for all and free college tuition and all that. But um, yeah, the, no, the, no, you're absolutely right though. You're absolutely right. And like, what are we here to do? We're here to keep it real, right? We're not gonna, we are not gonna be on a podcast devoted to decolonization and say that Bernie Sanders getting elected president was suddenly going to fucking, you know, reverse yeah, exactly. the period or some shit like that. Exactly. Um, so, sorry, my brother just distracted the fuck out of me. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and no, you're just absolutely right in what you say, what, yeah. what you just said. I don't know, man. Is what it is, I suppose, right? Can only look forward. Anyway, um, why don't we just jump into the topic? Um, again, since... I've known you like, and again, going back to my academic background being linguistics, um, I could sit here and deconstruct the entire etymology of words and romance based on phonological evolution and morphology and all this other stuff. But if I said in my entire four years doing my degree, there was more than one unit dedicated to sign language, that'd be an exaggeration. You know what I mean? I'm pretty sure my only exposure to it within a academic um situation was how it adheres to certain like grammar rules subject verb order that type of stuff but outside of that severely severely lacking and one thing i've always found fascinating that you and your brother are fairly proud of your like puerto rican heritage and all that and i know growing up in growing up bilingual english spanish in a very bilingual english spanish community how much language and in particular our specific dialect of spanish played in my identity whatever what i always found fascinating and was like curious to be honest is how having deaf parents played a role in shaping affecting your and your brothers obviously um you're not here to speak on behalf of your brother because he'll have his own individual experience, but how that played in the shaping of your Latino um, identity, I suppose. Absolutely. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's really an interesting uh, situation. And uh, my brother is here. Uh, he can introduce himself and chime in if he feels like it, or we can just cut this out and act like he doesn't exist at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, no, you're, you're exactly right. And here's what's so fascinating about it. Like, to, to properly explain what, how, how being raised by deaf parents shaped my identity, and probably to a certain extent my brother's and my sister's identities as well, I really have to go into the history of, of American Sign Language itself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you being a linguist as you, or having a degree in linguistics, as you mentioned, which I think is fascinating as fuck, just have to throw out there because I also love languages. And we should do like a whole episode literally about you talking about linguistics oh, man. one day as well. <laughs> that could take a while. But um, no, yeah. Um, yeah, I have to go into a bit of the history of American Sign Language to begin with. So r- real little brief summary here. American Sign Language, common, common misconception about American Sign Language is that it's related to English. Yep. And obviously the reason that people would think that is because in the United States, People speak English, right? Yeah. It makes sense. Well, no. American Sign Language is not related to, to English or British Sign Language, so to speak. American Sign Language descends from 
French sign language. Yeah. And one of the reasons this is is because back in the day when uh, sign languages were kind of like being developed and being standardized, the French were uh, well, people in France were a pioneer in this field. Specifically, yeah. a guy by the name of was it Laurent Leclerc, something like that. Um, he was a pioneer in this field, right? Whereas in Britain, sign languages were discouraged in favor yeah. of you know oralism, trying to teach people to just uh, speak teaching deaf people to speak that is um exactly yeah so it was the french that introduced sign language to the united states and began what would turn into american sign language yeah now why is this important why is this relevant well the reason this is relevant is because what that means is that american sign language does not use germanic grammar it uses romantic grammar like spanish does so, you know, Spanish and French being in the same, you know, language family. Yeah. So because of that, the the fact that me being, uh, you know, my family, me and my siblings being of Puerto Rican descent, uh, despite the fact that we didn't really have Spanish in the house, we, of course, spoke American Sign Language, which also used Romance grammar and was very different from English. So it kind of helped. It it was that it was it filled that dual identity role, kind of like you were yeah. speaking about earlier in your experience. Yeah. Because of how important uh you know language is, in kind of fueling that. You know, our language was not just signing English words and translating it that way. Yeah. It was a whole different fucking language. Like, yeah. <laughs> like a whole different thing. And so that. Coupled with myself being of, you know, darker skin, to me, that always made me feel like uh, that I was uh, that I was different from a lot of the other people that I grew up with in, in Virginia. Right. Yeah. Um, I always had that not only that kind of like physical othering in you know, yeah. my skin tone, but also that cu- uh, cultural othering. Yeah. And, that you know, I knew. Not every person had deaf parents, obviously. And it's and, you know, deaf culture is a very fascinating thing. You know, in deaf culture, what I would be referred to is as a is a a coda, C-O-D-A, which Mm -hmm. stands for child of deaf adult. Right. Any other codas are very familiar with this culture, very familiar with this upbringing. And, you know, deaf people and codas are very adamant about upholding and protecting deaf culture because it really is you know a culture in its own right and so exactly and and so that played a really big role in kind of like giving me my own cultural identity so to speak yeah and like i say the uh coming from puerto rican background was just important for this because it kind of um it be being in a place like virginia I mean, people, for all intents and purposes, and you're from you're from Florida, right? Yeah. So, and now, granted, you're from a heavily Puerto Rican part of Florida, so a little different. Yeah. But Florida's still part of the South, right? There's a lot of racist motherfuckers around here, right? Thank, thank, thanks for admitting Florida's part of the South. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. It's, hey, hey, I'm from Central Virginia, so people, you know, people people look down on the border states too. um but yeah no you you know what i mean though right yeah absolutely man exactly so it it it, 
being different in all those different categories fundamentally shaped me into you know being the person that I am and in many ways it's it's kind of hard to explain but in many ways like I wonder how different my cultural identity would be Mm -hmm. if I if if I didn't have that sign language yeah if I merely just had you know darker skin but was only raised with English you know would it would I still would I truly be able to understand the experience of having to translate for your parents you know an experience that many Latinx families know many children of Latinx parents know you know children of immigrants you know if like uh, a story that my brother likes to talk about uh my parents are deaf obviously we've said that um we've established that uh if the cops pulled them over who the fuck do you think they were talking to they were talking to us yeah even if we were eight nine ten years old they were talking to us yeah because they couldn't talk to my parents because they you know i mean they could try to communicate but we had to translate yeah you know a very an experience that and i shouldn't even limit this just to latinx family is immigrant families really broadly speaking yeah absolutely exactly parents people that you know don't have that fluency in english you know a lot of times and i've seen this with immigrant families all the time it is left up to the the children to do that translating and so it it you know being in that deaf culture it also served that kind of uh that role of giving me that experience that i've seen so many different uh immigrant families go through as well and it it ain't even just cops just going to the going to the fucking McDonald's drive through, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, bro, I was ordering the Big Mac, you know, <laughs> it wasn't my parents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a whole thing. It, it, it was crucial. And that's why I'm so proud of that. That's why my brother, I'm sure he's, you know, you know, feels proud of that as well, <laughs> because it's such a unique experience that served to, to like, <laughs> To really be the core or build the core of, of what, what we grew up to be, you know, yeah, to, totally. to, of being cognizant of other people's upbringings, other people's experiences, other people's cultures, you know, yeah. a deep, a deep sense of social justice, right? Deaf people can't sure. get jobs, you know, they need, they need assistance in some, in some way, uh, which thankfully the United States does provide that to us. To a degree, <laughs> for disabled folks. Yeah. Yeah, but I was gonna say as well, like, um, it's important that you brought all that up about the pride and actually it playing a role in the whole so- social justice world because, I mean, this is front and center in the concept of ableism, right? Like, I spoke to me having an entire degree in linguistics, and there being almost nothing, nothing about sign language. And I remember sitting in an introductory linguistics class talking about different types of communication, how linguistics is about communication at the end of the day, languages are used for communication, how sign language is a form of communication. And that was it. Like, how are we going to establish that that is a legit form of communication and then spend no time discussing it? Like, ling- like linguistics language is how a culture, how a people communicate who they are. You, you can't tell me that deaf people 
are missing some sort of personhood because they don't vocalize language necessarily. You know what I mean? So I think, again, I'm speaking as an outsider, but from where I'm sitting, there's still a lot that needs to be done to uh, de-otherize. I don't know if that's a proper word, but de-otherize that community. And I'm sure um, you'll agree that um, it's there's still a lot of work to be done, but it's important work that needs to be done. But um, Oh, dude, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then just to follow up on that a little bit. Um, you know, I, t- I mentioned a little bit about how in, in, you know, England, oralism was very uh, emphasized. Yeah, man, that battle continues to this day. Yeah. <laughs> like people, it's funny. It, it's funny how, like you literally just said, language plays such a big role in, you know, defining a people's identities, defining people's culture, cultures, right? And it's so funny to me how you see like you said you know deaf people kind of getting otherized in the way that their language is treated but there's also like a weird like fucked up class dynamic here yeah absolutely in that um what's a a common use for sign language these days what what do rich people do they teach their babies sign language right that's that's a thing because it helps encourage brain development right i mean i i mean i have i have a little one at home and that's what I do. Like, are you hungry? I make exactly. signs. You want this? I make certain signs. Exactly. But it's almost but, like, it's sorry, but yeah. like, again, for, for those of us who aren't deaf or have no experience, for us, it's almost a means to an end. Like, that's not like, that's just like a transit, uh, trans, transitory. Is that the word? Anyway, it's a for transition sure. point to eventually speaking and communicating and being a quote unquote normal person. You know what I mean? Yeah. For lack of a better yeah, term. It, it, absolutely. And here's the thing. Not just that the sign language sign language is actually there are groups that discourage teaching deaf baby sign language that say that if we teach them sign language it'll encourage them to self-isolate and to Mm -hmm. to turn away from quote-unquote hearing people culture you know which i find i find so interesting that when it comes to hearing babies learning sign language What's the most normal thing in the world? We're in trying to encourage brain development. Yeah. When it comes to deaf babies, the ones that actually have a practical use for it in the future, oh uh, well, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to encourage them to, to be, you know, into this weird, this weird tribe. Yeah, its, exactly. own, its own identity, um, and it's it's that weird kind of divide there. And a lot of that is is historical. It's the historical, you know, once again the historical oralism movement. You know, there's that. There is literally fucking big money lobby groups that fight uh, getting uh, deaf, getting uh, deaf babies access, fight against deaf babies getting access to sign language in schools. And of course, another added element is just our fucked up government that doesn't want to, you know, spend money on anything. So exactly, why would they pay for more teachers for deaf babies? Hell no. Exactly, it's just terrible. It's a yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing. And something that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, what's up? (laughs) <laughs> because this is something we've talked about before, like <laughs> linguistics as a whole field, like we, we just got to decolonize that whole motherfucker. Oh, absolutely. Like, 1, I, like, I lo- my favorite, one of my favorite phrases is Haitian Creole. What yeah. the fuck does that mean? Like that's its own language. Yeah. Why are we calling it Creole? Why, yeah. why, why is it called like a question that you, that you, or a thing that you were one of the first people to tell me is, you know, one of the great debates is like where does a dialect end and a language begin right exactly that's exactly right that's exactly right 
and so and think, often and so often it's it's applied disproportionately right against you know black countries brown countries oh no those are dialects right yeah yeah absolutely um and it's it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting concept and debate that still exists within the world of linguistics um and full disclosure i haven't necessarily worked that intensely within the linguistics world i would say but um yeah it's it's interesting because if you take a look at the different language groups and what's considered a language was considered a dialect you take for instance the romance languages and you compare it to say the arabic um speaking countries moroccan arabic and lebanese arabic are all considered arabic but moroccan arabic and lebanese arabic are almost unintelligible just because of the sheer like amount of space in between the two countries. Um, whereas Portuguese and Spanish are considered two completely different languages. Whereas they're by and large fairly intelligible if you pay enough attention. Um, it has to do a lot with a cultural identity, going back to the concept of identity, concept of borders, concept, concept of a unified culture. Um, using the example of Arabic, you have the great unifier of the Arab world, which was Islam, right? So as the Arabs went across North Africa, their one, I guess, in their mind, decolonial um, weapon was Islam. So tying um, speaking Arabic, Arabic culture into everyday life played a big role in labeling what they call their, their language. And... Um, that's also important to keep in mind when it came to like the decolonization of um, North Africa from the French, from the Europeans as well. Because during the context of the Algerian civil war, there was this strong movement towards Arabization that, look, we're not French. We have this unified Arabness, this unified like Africanness. You know what I mean? Um, which, is, which is very fascinating because, again, it goes into that whole idea of identity. So going into talking about, say, French Algeria, for example, a lot of people born and raised in Algeria may still feel some sort of connection to their, I don't want to say French heritage necessarily, because they could be 100% Berber, 100% Arab, but a lot of those colonial institutions still exist. So it's, it'd be really interesting to see where their Frenchness, for example, ends and where their Arabness begins or how they go about like dealing with that existential like isolation that a lot of us who are bilingual who grow up in with a foot in two worlds feel um really 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 fascinating um and yeah going back to the haitian creole thing like again a lot of the concepts that have to do with creolization and pigeonization of language goes back to physical colonization, right? A lot of what we talk about with decolonization is decolonizing the mind, the economy, institutions. But when we're talking about language, we're talking about a physical, like, stripping of culture, of language, of legislating away one's right to speak their own language. And there's a thousand theories about how Creoles and pigeons um, arise. Like arise. Um, there's theories about how it just comes with with um, this trade context. So you have a quote unquote native population and then you have a colonizing uh, population that comes in, is there for trade. This sort of halfway sort of um, way of speaking sort of emerges. Um, obviously Europeans either settle or go back to their nation, but now that sort of um, half, 
for lack of a better term, that sort of halfway speak that that kind of arose, once that gets nativized within the local populations, that can be labeled as a Creole. Um, but more importantly, with the actual word Creole itself, it's, at the end of the day, it's a very racialized term, right? Used by like European powers to discuss and to label what the what the colonized populations speak, right? Because again, Haitian Creole, Haitians don't speak French. They speak this sort of hodgepodge thing that's kind of based on French, but they're black, so they have their African languages as well. So oh, that, they're, just, they're the Creole population. They speak a Creole. Um, same thing with um, terms like patois, terms like pigeon. Um, they're all sort of came about within this European colonial strict racial caste system that exists. Um, and within Latin America, for our purposes for this podcast, like depending on who you speak to, certain countries will have will speak what's called a, a Creole. There, I've heard arguments that sort of um, personal Puerto Rican Spanish can be considered a Creole because of U- U.S. colonization, our African influence, our Taino influence. Um, influence from other regions are very particular linguistic characteristics that are unlike other parts of Latin America. But again, sure. because Creole as a term is highly racialized, we'll, we'll reject that. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, and again, it's definitely something that needs to be considered and deconstructed in our journey to decolonize ourselves, right? For um, sure, yeah. Yeah, man. Um, but yeah, it's very, very, very fascinating. Very fascinating. No, yeah, it is. Like, God, man, like, if I I wish I could just like devote my entire life just to learning languages and shit. Like, that's how interesting all of that stuff. Like, even my Spanish is, you know, mediocre to put it mildly. Um, just because like developing an, uh, uh, a literary tradition is so key yeah, to so, like developing, you know, your own culture, your actual own identity, and that's why I feel like it's so, it's just fucked up when these when these languages are kind of like uh, are are treated in the way that they are, you know, calling them Creoles and shit like that. And, and I don't know, maybe that's my own yeah. fucked up opinion, <laughs> um, but no, I don't know. It, it just seems, yeah, it just seems like, yeah, it's like going back to down. the terms of like. Creole and pigeon, it, that just sort of plays into man's need to categorize everything. You know what I mean? And again, going back to what we talked about, the otherization of people, that's our need to otherize people we look at as, in, as inferior or different to us. And obviously, colonial powers are going to see themselves as superior. So they're, always, they're not going to um, consider what they speak a Creole, even though I can sit here and talk at length about how English language itself has been creolized, so to speak, for exactly. years, going back to the Norman Conquest, going back to Anglo-Saxon invasion of England, and and all that stuff. English is a creole. Exactly. But no, exactly. but no, no one's going to call it a creole because it's spoken by white people. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, fuck them. It's all bullshit. Yeah, um, but no, yeah. It's something that I would love to ask you about as well. Like, you touched a little bit on about, you know, speaking Spanish kind of shaping your identity a little bit. Bro, yeah. I... Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode. Bro, yeah. I'm up here in Bumpfuck, Virginia. Ain't no Puerto <laughs> Ricans up. <there>. Yeah. <laughs> down down where you were at, like, 
if you were in school, like, was everybody just kind of dipping in between English and Spanish, or was it just mostly English and at home you're speaking Spanish, or like, like how deep, how deep of like a cultural like a fusion or whatever, what uh, you know, was it? Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because obviously when you think of Florida and like quote unquote Hispanic culture, one thinks of Miami because of the massive Cuban population, which is which is true. Um, the difference between where I grew up in Central Florida and Miami is that. By the time that I was growing up, Miami was already v- that concept, right? It was already a stronghold for the Cuban-American population, largely um, a growing Central American and South American population as well. So Spanish language, Caribbean culture, Latin American culture at large was already dominant there. Um, when I was growing up, there was still the Puerto Rican population specifically was still growing. It was still massive, but it was still building up. So it hadn't actually sort of taking control, I guess, or embedded itself fully into the local culture, even though the majority of students spoke it, right? Um, and it's interesting because... Um, see, oh, sorry? Yeah, sorry, keep going. No, because of that, like, in, in, all the institutions are still English and American, U.S.-based, right? Very, very, very gringo, very, very white. Um, so everything was English. I remember, um, because I grew up bilingual, right? So I spoke Spanish at home. But I watched TV in English. I went to school in English. All my friends spoke English. Like everything I did, everything other thing I did was in English. So I was bilingual. But my parents, being the proud Puerto Rican parents they are, when I started school, um, on their first language, they put Spanish. So they put me in ESOL. So here I am, like completely fluent and native in the English language. But the school felt all because on this piece of paper, my parents decided, his parents decided to put Spanish. He needs help with the Spanish. And I always tell the story that when I was going to these like ESOL classes, I was actually learning Spanish more than I was learning English. That's amazing. You know what I mean? Because the things that yeah. I was from home were home things, like things in the kitchen, like pick up your toys, this and that, like that type of, that type of conversation. But I was being yeah. educated exclusively in English. You know what I mean? Bro, that's um, like a microcosm of like the Puerto Rican diaspora experience, right? No, At least definitely for me. Like, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, but yeah, but um, as time went by, like, as the Puerto Rican population exploded. And one interesting thing that was happening is, obviously, everyone knows about, like, the New Yorican population, like, the population of Puerto Ricans who settled in the earlier part of the 20th century through to, to now. But um, during the 90s and early 2000s, once, you know, Puerto Rican economy was coming to, like, a like, critical head, and people were like migrating off the island. They were settling in Central Florida. But you also had this population of New Yorkans who had been in New York for one, two, three generations already coming down as well. And then you had a smaller population of those of us who may not necessarily have been born there, but grew up there. So you have this sort of coming together of a New Yorkan specific sort of culture, the specific island culture, and those of us who are sort of navigating kind of three worlds and seeing that dynamic. Oh, yeah. Playing and seeing its own sort of Puerto Rican identity grow was very, very fascinating. Um, and, and real quick, touching upon like the New York Rican aspects, like an extra layer of like the clusterfuck that is like my own, like uh, my own understanding of my cultural background. Like, like you said, some New York Ricans have been there for generations. Yeah. So like there were there were like meeting because uh, some of my family is, is from New York. Right. But my dad was born and raised on the island like he he was from Ponce 
So it was it's it was interesting to me to meet New Yorkans who have family that have lived in the United States for generations, but yeah. speak Spanish as opposed to myself, who, despite my father literally being born on the island, you know, yeah. I don't, but, you know, because of my parents being deaf, I don't really speak as good of Spanish. Like yeah. there's that weird, like cultural divide where like my family, like technically on my dad's side, I am the first generation born in the United States. Yet meeting some New Yorkans who have been here for generations, there's that always that question of, you know, who's more Puerto Rican, whatever that's, the fuck that means. That's exactly you know? right. That's, that's actually something I wanted to touch on as well, because that's definitely something that I saw and lived like firsthand. So you have these Puerto Ricans coming off the islands and then New Yorkans coming down. And you definitely have a lot of islanders looking down on New Yorkans because of their Spanish might not be as good. Even their English, they have a certain accent. They're not really American because they don't sound like this white guy over here and blah, 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 blah. They left long ago. Like, they're true. And, and like, given, like, the nature of the, the political status of Puerto Rico, there's always this sort of um, cognitive dissonance about yep. wanting to be American but not wanting to be too American where you're not Puerto Rican either. Oh, so yeah. I remember personally experiencing that as well. Because, again, like, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm natively bilingual. But again, because I was educated in English, because outside of my home, outside of sort of my smaller relationship units, my entire world's in English. My English is definitely a lot, I would say, a lot better than my Spanish. Like academically, my English is a lot better than my Spanish. So there was always that certain, that, that sort of existential thing that I was had to deal with. That a lot of us who sort of, again, grew up on the, so to speak, mainland, how to deal with, like, right? Having one foot in the U.S. in an English-speaking world, one foot in Puerto Rico in a Spanish-speaking world, but at the same time, not really having, not really having a foot in either. You know what I mean? You're trying exactly. to navigate these two yeah. identities as best you can, yeah. but to a certain degree, n- neither side really accepts you 100%. So it's always exactly. dealing with, um, yeah. and going back to language, like, always think always having this sort of alienation the stress about like oh my spanish isn't great so i'm less puerto rican they're going to be in front of me like they're not going to accept me what's this what's this say about me as a proper puerto rican as a proper latino blah 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 but as i grew up and got into linguistics and got into sort of leftist thought and everything and the, the colonization and the colonial thought who who cares because at the end of the day both spanish and english are both colonial languages you know what i mean so if someone from, if a foreigner, so to speak, doesn't speak and doesn't speak English well or speaks with an accent, it's because they're fluent in a different, in a different language. You know what I mean? And especially yeah. coming from America, like people make fun of, oh, this person has an accent in English, but they speak Spanish fluently, right? And yeah. they're more likely descended from people who spoke a different language that had Spanish imposed upon them. So at the end of the day, who cares if my Spanish, your Spanish, if a Puerto Rican Spanish or, or from any other Latin American country, their Spanish isn't great or doesn't adhere to like the prescriptive notions of grammar and language. At the end of the day, that's just, that's just, that's just colonialism, like, like internalized. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all bullshit, you know, touching all, a little bit upon. Exactly. Yeah. And, and touching a little bit upon, you know, what you were saying earlier about, like, being stuck between, like, two worlds kind of, like, is the, the experience that some of us go through. Like, it's it's interesting being, once again, here in, in, in Virginia, like, I, you know, I was able to get along with, you know, most groups of people. But 
the people that I always, you know, was able to connect with the most for obvious reasons were the local, you know, Latinx community, right? Which, once again, not too many Puerto Ricans. I was, like, the one among, like, maybe a handful of other, you know, Puerto Ricans. The majority, you know, Mexicans or Central Americans, and these were the people that, you know, really embraced me. Yeah. Um, even, even, you know, despite my, uh, now don't, don't get me wrong, people fucked with me, but, like, they embraced me to a level that the, you know, the white community in Virginia didn't, right? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that is because of, you know, my darker skin, you know, Virginia being a more Southern state, you know, one drop rule. But, like, it's it's this weird, like, like you said, being <laughs> stuck between two worlds, you know, not really knowing what the fuck you are. But, like, being able to be embraced by the local Latinx community was really crucial to me being able to kind of, like, uh, to 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 understand my my cultural identity um but 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 like you said it's all kind of fucked up in that these are all colonizer languages that we're bullshitting about anyway so yeah um, real quick actually i think uh my brother might want to introduce himself here what yo what up what up it's uh um t uh austin's brother but i've just been sitting here listening to y'all y'all you know shooting the shit and talking about these really deep ideas but something like we're talking about liminal spaces, right? Yeah. We're talking about occupying. We're we're talking about occupying two different worlds, but then also not occupying two different worlds at the same exact time. That's exactly so, right. So, like, what's interesting is, you know, obviously, like Austin, I come from Virginia, but yeah. are, so like, my whole life, I personally have, I have trouble with with identity and concepts of identity. Uh, for a number of reasons, you know, number one, you know, Pops is from Puerto Rico. Mom uh, is Italian, right? Family's a, a northern family, but we live in Virginia. So I'm not, you know, we were raised Catholic in a Protestant area, you know, yeah. in a Baptist, Southern Baptist area. So, you know, I'm white, but not quite. Um, I'm not northern. I'm not southern, yeah. right? And I think, you know, one of the effects, you know, if we're relating this to decolonization politics, you know, what's one of the first things that, you know, a, a colonial power does? It, it divides up the population into neat little groups, right? Absolutes. That's right. right. And part of really pursuing a decolonial politics, I think, is kind of breaking away from those absolutes, you know, recognizing that we, you know, in many respects, a lot of us occupy these liminal spaces. Puerto Rico itself is a liminal space. You know, a lot of the indigenous population there was, you know, for lack of a better word, exterminated. You know, yeah. the question of, oh, a New Yorican is not really a Puerto Rican versus someone who, oh, you don't speak Spanish or you uh, do only speak Spanish. Yeah. You know, the question of what is a Puerto Rican isn't just something apply that you can apply to, you know, island versus, you know, the states. Yeah. Looking at Puerto Rico itself, what is a Puerto Rican, you know? You know, understanding and recognizing and being able to take hold of those liminal spaces wherever we can, I think is is crucial to really kind of like unpacking what what all of these uh, you know, what what all of this means, trying to get a, trying to get away from those absolutes is is really I, I think a big part of it and you know i just uh it's something that i think about a lot you know um being being you know also you know the fact that our parents are deaf they're deaf i'm hearing am i deaf am i hearing 
You know, it's I've I've only occupied liminal spaces in my own person my whole life. You feel me? That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely, man. And again, like that goes back to what's again, like you said, the central theme of colonization, like otherizing people, our need to categorize everything to nice little things that we understand. And if we're going to properly bring about the revolution, we need to work to destroy those things to be able to properly build a unified humanity, so to speak. Make sense? Exactly. Yeah, we just got to abolish borders. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely, man. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I think that's. Pretty, I was, I was going to say, I don't know if, uh, T, since you're here, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, how tomorrow's Easter or any bullshit like that. Well, it's actually. <laughs> sign off with a. Sign it's, off with a. It's, it's, it's Easter today for me, so remember, I'm in the side of the planet. Oh, that's right. It's already Easter. Oh, damn, that's true. Well, shit. <laughs> Even better. So it is Easter. So give us a prayer or some shit. Yeah, man. Big <laughs> week man, for you too. Look, yo, we'll t- we'll talk about like religion and decolonization because that's a subject I've been looking into lately uh, on some other episode. But I can get into that another time. But um, you know, you know, thinking about like this plague that we're going through, you know. Uh, Good Friday, at least in our part of the world, was yesterday, a couple days for you, you know, uh, for people of, you know, the Christian faith, you know, it might feel like a long extended, you know, Good Friday. But remember that, you know, with every crucifixion, there's the promise of an empty tomb. There we go. Some spiritual shit right there. That was good. Thanks for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was just telling Leroy, maybe we'll do like a uh, we'll do liberation theology at some point. Hell yeah. Yeah, because that really fascinates me. Again, because I'm not religious at all. Like like most Latin Americans, they grew up Catholic, they my first communion, did all that stuff. But as I got older, I don't want to say I was disillusioned because I was never really that drawn to it to begin with. But um, would really be fascinated to hear all your thoughts and your perspectives. And um, hey, who knows um, what the future holds for me? But um, again, we'll we'll get we'll get into that in a different a different episode. Yeah, buddy. Um, what do you say about leaving it there? I think. Pretty good conversation about language, identity, who we are, and Absolutely. everything. Um, any last words you guys want to add? Um, no, I, I just uh, seconding whatever the fuck my brother just said. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Absolutely, guys. Um, so, yeah, so we'll leave it there. We'll um, tune in next time with um, maybe liberation theology, maybe something different, but um, definitely we'll be good. And we'll, again, we'll do our best not to be awkward and all this stuff. But, um, Again, see you guys next time. Word. Cheers. Take it easy, easy, fam.